The, um, the Galatians, uh, uh, Galatian is a region, not a city. And so where he's writing this letter to the, to the Galatians, it's, uh, this letter was intended and uh, was uh, sent from town to town, Lystra, Derby, and other uh, um, cities that made up the region of Galatia where there were churches. It seems that uh, from some things that Paul said in writing earlier in this, uh, in this letter, it seems that uh, after he had established the churches there uh, on his first missionary journey, that there were Jews that came in after him. Um, we don't know if they were saved or unsaved. But they uh, started demanding of the people, that, uh, telling them that it was the will of God for them to keep the law of Moses along with believing in Jesus. And so Paul writes a letter to the Galatians trying to uh, sort out everything, uh, get it back to where uh, it was when he established the churches, and by that I mean get the people to believing the things that he had taught them while he was there. And, uh, and it's probably the uh, book of Hebrews was attached to the letter of the Galatians, sent to the Galatians, and um, its purpose was to try to inform the Jews of what Jesus had done and what Jesus had fulfilled and, and the, the place that the Old Testament law, law of Moses uh, held in Christianity, which was basically nothing. And he knew that that letter would be uh, uh, taken and transferred and sent down to Jerusalem for the religious leaders in the, the mother church, in the Jerusalem church, to see and know as well. So in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, he's trying to identify to the believers, the Gentile Christians, what belongs to them and why. Why things happened the way they did. Why Jesus went to the cross, came to the earth and died on the cross and so forth. Verse 13, he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That, or so that, here's why he did it, so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, I want you to notice something. The last part of verse 14, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, He's talking about the new birth experience. He's talking about God living on the inside of us. Now, everything about the Old Testament, uh, law and the prophets and so forth, pointed to the time where God would come and live inside mankind. Live inside of us as individuals and inhabit his church. Those people that gave their hearts and lives to the Lord that make up the family of God. And so where he's talking about receiving the promise of the Spirit through faith... He's talking specifically about the new birth experience that they have entered into already. But notice the other part. He said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Now, I want you to notice that it's not the curse of the law and the blessing of the law. You would think that those would be the, the equivalent positions, opposite positions on either side of the spectrum. But he calls it the curse of the law and the blessing of Abraham. What does that mean? Well, it means specifically that all the things in the Old Testament, all the things that God had promised to Israel, were a result of his covenant relationship, God's covenant relationship with, uh, with Abraham. The story of Abraham is identified very specifically in the, um, uh, what we know of as the Old Testament. And for Paul to be talking about the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians in Galatia, means that he's told them a lot about that too. Now, what would a Gentile know 
Now, they're not living in our day and time where you could Google Abraham and find out what the Bible says about him or whatever. They're living in a time where most of what they've got is oral tradition. Paul didn't leave behind books. He sent letters to the churches that he had been to to help them to understand who they are in Christ and, and establish church doctrines and so forth. But when he says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law that the blessing of Abraham might come upon us, come upon us as Gentiles and them, what do they know about Abraham? Gentiles didn't make a practice of learning the, the background or the history or the events surrounding Judaism, did they? That tells me that he's done enough preaching about Abraham to be confident that they know what, who he is and what, God, uh, what God's dealings with Abraham were all about. So notice he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ Jesus and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He's talking about two different things. They're interrelated, certainly, but he's talking about two different things. If the blessing of Abraham included the promise of the Spirit through faith, or if he was confident that they would understand that that's what he meant by that phrase, the blessing of Abraham, then he wouldn't have mentioned it separately. And the fact that he did mention it separately tells me that there are blessings that belong to Israel through Abraham that now belong to the church. This is something, this is an area that the devil took advantage of me for a long time. How many of you have ever been reading in the Old Testament, seeing something really good that God promised, and then the voice speak up in your head, in your uh, mind, and says, yeah, but that was just for the Jews. Well, I don't fall for that anymore. I hope you don't either. It's a pretty common thing. I think we've all had that experience. But it was learning who we are, how the law worked, what the law was for, and what relationship it had with the blessing that God had promised Abraham as a covenant partner that got me to the place where the devil wasn't taking advantage anymore. So notice how Paul talks about these things. We assume that they know the same things, maybe not uh, as well read as we are on the subjects. We've got a great deal of information and sources of information that they didn't have. But let's keep reading here and begin, pick it up in verse 15. He said, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth it or, change, or addeth thereto. Remember, the Jews have come after, he's, uh, after Paul left town. The Jews have come in behind them requiring of the Gentile Christians that they keep the law of Moses. So he's going to talk about the relationship of Jesus versus the law and so forth. Verse 16, he said, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Notice what he's saying. Notice what the point that he's trying to make. To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one in thy seed, and to thy seed, which is Christ. In other words, he's saying it's not the blessing doesn't belong to Abraham and his seeds, plural. The blessing belongs to Abraham and his seed that the Holy Ghost identifies with Jesus. So where the devil tries to tell us that was just for the Jews, it's never been just for the Jews. It was always God's plan through Jesus to bless his children. Let's keep reading. Verse 17, he said, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, 
The law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Verse 16, he talks about, we just read where he talked about um, uh, even a contract between men. If it's ratified, then you can't change it. You can't add anything to it. You can't annul it, mean make it void, null and void. You can't take away from it. It's already been confirmed, settled on between the two parties. Now here he talks about Abraham's promise. He talks about the law and how the law came in 430 years after the promises were made to Abraham and the covenant was determined between Abraham and God. But notice how the covenant came into being between God and Abraham. Let's read it again. And this I say, verse 17, this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ. The law of 430 years later can't change. The covenant was between Abraham and God in Christ. Paul writes uh, in another part of this uh, letter that he writes to the Galatians. It tells us specifically that God preached the gospel to Abraham. What do you think the gospel means? What can we identify from what Paul said to understand what Abraham knew? You remember there were several different places where God would speak to Abraham and each time he was leading him further and further along into his relationship with him, into God's relationship with Abraham. First time he met with him, uh, first time God appeared unto Abraham was Genesis chapter, what is it, 11, I guess, where he said, follow me to the land that I'll show you and I'll make, you, make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. He promised him children. He promised him provision, natural provisions, wealth. If he'd just simply obey. And Abraham obeyed. He didn't obey exactly the way God told him. God said, leave the, leave the land of your fathers and go where I tell you. And these blessings will be yours. These possessions will come into being. Well, Abraham took family members with him. He took Lot. He took, took his father. And so at each point, when his father dies, then God steps up the covenant a little bit deeper, goes a little bit deeper into the covenant relationship, a little bit deeper into the blessings, so that Abraham could see that God was on his side. Finally, when he separated from Lot, God makes a covenant with him in a very specific manner to bring him closer, bring Abraham closer than God had ever been to anybody except Adam. And Abraham believed God. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God showed Abraham his original plan, his plan of redemption. He showed Abraham that through him, through Abraham, there would come the Messiah. The law didn't have anything to do with that. What Abraham knew about God's plan the law didn't have anything to do with. The law came 430 years later, Paul says. The relationship that God intended to have through Abraham's descendants was already established. But I want you to notice the covenant was with God in Christ. He goes on in verse 18 and tells us about if the inheritance it can be obtained by the law, then it's not a promise. You can't have it both ways. You can't get the inheritance of God, the blessings of Abraham, by keeping of the law and by promise. Because if it's keeping of the law that's necessary for that blessing to come about, then it was never a promise. 
So he's making some specific statements, some specific information is being delivered to us by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to tell us it's even back then, even in the early days of the church, even for the Jews that were in bondage to keep the law that nobody could ever keep. Paul goes on to say the reason that the law came into being was to show man that he couldn't do it on his own, which identifies that the blessing of Abraham had to be by promise, not by obedience. Had to be. So he goes on, talks about the mediator of the law. Let's pick up again in verse 21. He says, is the law then against the promises of God? If God gave commandments through Moses that man couldn't keep, then did God break his promise or did God act unrighteously? He said, God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. So he talks about the law being like a schoolmaster. Let's skip down to verse 26. He said, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. He's talking to the Gentiles. After establishing that the Jews had been given special position with God, it's now through Jesus Christ that the relationship can be fulfilled and is fulfilled so that the blessings of Abraham can be yours. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Greek means Gentile. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 9. Paul writing the letter to the Romans. And at that point in time, he hadn't been to Rome. So the churches that were there and had been established in, uh, in the city of Rome, he was the spiritual grandfather of, not the father, spiritual father, the ones that planted the churches, but people that he had ministered to and people that had come up under him were the ones that were relocated to Rome and therefore started the churches. So notice what he says, beginning in verse 1, we get an inside little glimpse into what Paul's mindset was, what kind of person he was. He said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's saying I'd be willing to give up my own salvation if the Jews would accept Jesus. And knowing that he couldn't give up his own salvation for that purpose might have made it easier to say. But if he's being sincere, which I think we have to except that he is. He shows his care and his concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Here's why. He says, who are Israelites? These are the kinsmen according to the flesh. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption? Instead of the word Israelite, I'm going to use the word Jew, but I hope you understand that it, the way I'm using it anyway is the, it means the same thing. So he's saying the Jews were the ones that were originally given the promises. They had a special relationship with God. They were the ones that God intended to adopt to be a part of his family. They were the ones to whom was given the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. It's through the Jews that our forefathers and of whom is concerning the flesh, Jesus Christ came who is over all and God blessed forever. 
In other words, he's pointing out, these are the reasons why I want the Jews. I want so deeply that the Jews would come into the family of God. They were the ones that God did all these things for. They were the ones that God sent Jesus to the earth to save. They were the ones that God defended against their enemies because they're descendants of Abraham. Verse 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. I skip verse 6. I need to back up. Notice he says, Not as though the word of God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. This is a, a verse of Scripture that's been fought over in theological circles for a long time. But it's real simple what Paul's saying. You need a theology, a theology degree to mess it up. But Paul is very simply saying, not everybody that's a natural descendant of Israel is who God means when he says Israel. Not all of Israel is Israel. Well, who is Israel? What does he mean to be Israel? He means the ones to whom the blessing of Abraham would be upon. He says not all the Jews meet that, no matter what their pedigree is, no matter what their line of descendancy from Abraham is all about. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. In other words, folks, all that time that the devil was telling us that these promises are just for the Jews, they never were just for the Jews. They aren't even all for all, all the promises are not even all are relevant to all Jews. Because once Jesus came, he became the line, the source for the blessings of Abraham. The children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, and at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one even by our father Isaac. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him that calleth. He's very simply saying, and remember the context is the Jews are telling the Gentiles in Galatia that you can't be part of God's family. You can't have a special place or a relationship with God unless you keep the law of Moses too, along with whatever you do concerning Jesus. And Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost, I like to say the Holy Ghost is telling us through Paul, that the blessing of Abraham is through one and only one source. And that is the seed, singular, the seed of Abraham, which is Christ. That means that every good thing you see in the Old Testament, every promise that you can find that God made to Israel before Jesus came to the earth, he intended for it to be passed on to his children, to his family, through Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, with that in mind... I'm going to look uh, to um, the Old Testament, uh, a dealing that God had with Abraham. Again, this is part of the progression of the covenant, promises and relationship and so forth. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1, it talks about when God dealt with Abraham and gave him instruction to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, you remember that... Um, 
Sarah, his wife, saw that they were approaching the age where they couldn't have children anymore from a natural standpoint. And so she brought her handmaid, Hagar, into Abraham, and he had a son named Ishmael. And he's met with God before, and God tells him, has told him from from early on, that in Isaac shall your seed be blessed. Not through Ishmael, who was born because of Sarah's manipulation and trying to make a plan. But when he at 100 years of age, he meaning Abraham, and Sarah at 90 had the child of promise, God had specifically told him before Isaac was ever born that in Isaac shall your seed be blessed. So every promise that God's made, everything that would be passed down to the descendants of Abraham, God said would have to be through Isaac. So here in verse 1 it says, And God gave instruction to Abraham, came to pass after these things, that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. I, it's, in my view, it's very unfortunate that the King James translation translated this word tempt, God tempting Abraham, because that causes confusion to some folks. You remember in, uh, in James, in the New Testament, when James is writing to the church, he talks a little bit about temptation in chapter 1. He says that temptation cannot and should not be attributed to God because God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt anyone with evil. And then he goes on to say, temptation comes when we're drawn away of our own lust. So the temptation or the tempting that takes place in Genesis chapter 22 is nothing like what James talks about concerning New Testament temptation. Nothing. This word tempt in Genesis 22 verse 1 literally means to prove. It means to test in context of proving something. For example, if you were making something, it wouldn't matter if you were pouring steel or iron or making something out of metal or making something out of wood, somewhere along the process, every manufacturer does this, somewhere along the process, there are tests made on the item that was manufactured to see or to prove out what kind of strength it has, what kind of resistance it can withstand. That's what this word tempt means. In Genesis 22, it's literally God proving Abraham. It's not a matter of finding out if Abraham will believe him, if he'll believe God. That's already been established. But now that the child miraculously has been born, at this point in time, uh, Isaac is probably a teenager, He's probably in his mid, maybe late teens. And Abraham's been pouring everything into that child that he can. He's been teaching him everything that he can about God. He's taught him about the sacrifices that God requires. He's taught him everything that he can, every step along the way. But God now has to prove Abraham to see how far this covenant can go. Here's what I mean by that. God offered Abraham unlimited resources, help, protection, deliverance, and so forth. Abraham has been told by God, 
I'm, I'm yours. You and I are in, in uh, this covenant relationship together, meaning anything that you have need of is at your disposal. But remember, God, and he's already preached the gospel to Abraham through this situation. He's already told Abraham that the Messiah would come through him. So when he gets to the place where he has to prove Abraham, he's simply trying to identify. He, meaning God, is simply trying to identify how far can this covenant relationship go. And that's not determined by God. That's determined by Abraham. It's not determined by how far God will go or it's not determined by how much God was, would be willing to give. It's not determined by what God was willing to do for Abraham. The boundaries of this relationship, if there are going to be any, the boundaries of this relationship made through the covenant that God made with Abraham has to be proved and set by Abraham himself. Now, we know in hindsight, we know that God is looking for a right, a legal right, to send his son into the earth to die for mankind. Whether Abraham knew that completely at this point, we don't know. But we do know that the end result that God is trying to identify from Abraham is will he withhold his son from what I tell him to do? That's what the test is all about. Because if Abraham is willing to offer his son, then by nature and definition of the covenants, God has to be willing to offer his, which was the original plan of redemption. So we'll read the story. Again, verse 2, God said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. There is no indication, there is no hint of any resistance whatsoever on Abraham's part. None whatsoever. Now remember what Abraham is, has seen and learned. At age 75, God first appeared to him and said, Leave your father's land and go where I tell you to go, and I'll make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. You'll be blessed, and you'll be a blessing. The Bible tells us that very soon thereafter, Abraham was very rich in silver and cattle and gold because God had made him rich. You remember along the way when Lot separates from Abraham and goes into the city of Sodom to live. You remember how there were enemy armies that, that took captive the city of Sodom and others as well. And Abraham made an army of 318 people out of his own household. And he went and delivered, Sod uh, delivered Lot from the hands of, the, of their enemies. At that time, Melchizedek, or after that event, Melchizedek comes right on the heels of the king of Sodom offering him money. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, you take all the stuff, the, the money and, and everything that's worth anything and give me the people. And Abraham wouldn't have any part of it. He said, I don't want anybody to be able to say that anybody but God made me rich. So he turned it down. Then he offers tithes unto Melchizedek. Fast forward a little bit. We see the situation increase as far as the covenant relationship is concerned between God and Abraham. When God comes down to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah, and we know what the end result of that was, hail mixed with fire fell on the cities and, and everybody was killed. But God wouldn't even do that without telling his covenant partner what he was going to do first. 
Abraham seems to, to have such a relationship or such a position with God as to argue with him about the conditions that he brings judgment on Sodom. He says, if you find 50 righteous there in the city, will you destroy it? God said, no, I won't destroy it for 50. He gets him down to 10. He negotiates God down to 10. I assume that he thinks there's got to be 10 if he counts Lot and his family. But they didn't even all qualify. So we see a position that Abraham held with God, able to speak to him face to face about the things that God will do to bring judgment on the earth. And when the time comes, Abraham would be about 115, 116 years old, maybe 118, somewhere around there. When God says, which means he's been walking with him for, what is that, 43 years or so, since he was 75. When God says, I want you to offer your son Isaac for a burnt offering as a sacrifice, he doesn't blink an eye. Now, I'm sure thoughts... Maybe doubts. I'm sure there's a lot of things going on in Abraham's head. But one thing that he knows for sure, one thing that, that the Bible says he could rely on and did rely on, the one thing he knew for sure was that God said that his seed would be through Isaac. So Isaac either can't die or he can't stay dead. But again... Think of the confidence that he'd have to have in God's word. It says of Abraham several different places, beginning in Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. What kind of confidence must he have to not hesitate? God wants me to offer my son, my only son, the miracle child, the child of promise. He doesn't bat an eye. So it says they traveled three days. I wonder what's going through Abraham's head during those three days. He's the only one that knows what's going on. He hadn't shared anything with Isaac yet. But they traveled for three days, verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship. Notice the next phrase, and come again to you. Hebrews 11, talking about this experience of Abraham, said that Abraham received Isaac in a figure as raised from the dead. It goes back to the thing that I just said. He knew that God had promised that his seed would be blessed through Isaac. So Isaac either can't die or he can't stay dead. It seems that Abraham is leaning toward the can't stay dead with the events that are identified. But indeed, but indeed, the last part of verse 5, he says, we will go up and we will come again to you. So he's counting on something happening. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here am I, son. And he said, behold the fire in the wood. But where's the lamb for a burnt offering? So he obviously knows how these sacrifices go. Abraham has obviously taught him about the sacrifice. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Does Abraham know what he's saying? 
he says and speaks one of the greatest prophecies in all of Scripture. He said, God will offer his son for an uh, God will offer. Uh, I'm messing it up. I better go back and read it. My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. That's exactly what he did with Jesus. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, there's got to be some missing parts to this story. He's not just going to start tying Isaac up without Isaac asking some questions about, hey, Dad, we've never done it this way before. What exactly is going on here? And how could Abraham tell him or convince him? Remember, Isaac is probably in his mid to late teens. His dad's 115 or so years old. There'd be no question about Isaac being able to overpower Abraham if that's what he had in mind. Wouldn't that have been a conversation? Well, son, God told me to use you as the sacrifice. Oh, really? Great. Let me just lay down right here on the altar. I think it speaks to the relationship Abraham must have had with his son, first of all. And the confidence that he's instilled into Isaac concerning the trust that Abraham had in God. What else could it be? So he ties Isaac up. And he lays him on the altar upon the wood. Verse 10. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. He is going through this thing. I think if it had been us, even with hindsight, knowing how the story turned out, I think we'd been making very, very slow steps. When it came time to pick up the knife, we would have done everything in the world to give God plenty of time to stop this if he's going to. But that's the whole point. Abraham wasn't going to stop it. If it stopped, if it kept from happening, it's going to be because God stopped it. God is proving Abraham. This is not a temptation like to be tempted with evil or tempted to steal something or your neighbors or something like this. This is a proving ground. This is Abraham under pressure. What's he going to do? What's the pressure of this situation going to do? When I think of this being my son, I have to just hope that I'd been as strong as Abraham was. But I can't say for sure I would have been. So he stretches forth the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know, please get this phrase, for now I know, this is what it was all about. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. Jehovah-Jireh means the Lord will provide. Now who's he providing to? Just anybody and everybody that comes along? Well, if Abraham's example is one that we're to follow, then the Lord will provide those who are willing to entrust their whole lives to God and not withhold any part of it. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now I want you to notice verse 17. We read over it pretty quickly, and I'm not sure you saw the... um, Well, what is to me the most important part of the the statement or the promise that God made. Notice the last phrase of verse 17. Here's the blessing that God said he would bless him with. Uh, Abraham's been blessed by God in a number of different ways for a long time. Beginning in Genesis chapter 11 and uh, and chapter 12, where it says the result of his obedience ended up with Abraham being rich in silver and cattle and gold. Because the Lord blessed him. God started dealing with Abraham about material things. What else would Abraham relate to if not material things? How is God going to get him to obey if he doesn't show him the the natural, the physical benefits first? How interested is Abraham going to be in spiritual things when he doesn't know anything about the one that's talking to him? But now the relationship has grown to the point where the blessing of multiplying your seed as the stars of the heaven as the sand which is upon the seashore, there's something that's added to that. And he says, in thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, I don't know if you know what that means. Most people don't, I, I guess, without some study and some understanding of the, um, the history behind the Bible record. There's not much way for people to know. But it's very clearly a reference to his authority on the earth. It's a very clear reference to domination or dominion over all of their enemies. Now, the Bible says the things that happened in the Old Testament were, are for types and shadows, examples for us. So what's the example here that we have? Well, remember where we started in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. Verse 14, that or so that the blessing of Abraham would come upon the Gentiles and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Skip down to verse 29 that we read in Galatians chapter 3 and it says that that if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, here's the promise. To possess the seed of your, or to possess, possess the gates of your enemies. Now in Bible days, There were enemy nations. The Amalekites were Israel's enemies. Um, The Philistines in David's day were 
the enemies of Israel and so forth. There are a, a number of different nations and people that were their enemies. And God's promise specifically has to do with the land that he's giving them, that he gave them through Abraham, and their victory over their enemies. But what about us? What kind of example is this supposed to set for us? Who are our enemies? Well, we're not enemies with any class of people or any geographic region because the church of the Lord, the family of God, is spread out all over the world. So possessing the gates of our enemies has to be a spiritual reference for us, doesn't it? It doesn't mean that we don't have the same promises of provision that God made for Ab to Abraham. We do. But here where it says that the children of God that Paul identifies as not all of Israel belongs to this group. It's through Jesus, not through the keeping of the law. So the possessing the gate of our enemies has to include or has to refer to the dominion we have over Satan, the enemy of the church and the enemy of God. And notice again, he says, and your seed will possess the gates of his enemies. If you possess the gates, if you control the gates, you control what your enemy does and doesn't do. What he does and doesn't do. I want you to turn with me now. I know I'm running out of time, so I'll finish this real quickly. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 11. The law was given, according to Paul's account, the law was given to be a schoolmaster for us, to teach us that we couldn't keep the law by ourselves. And so it had to be done outside of us, meaning Jesus had to bypass the sin of man to be a sacrifice for all of mankind, which he did, thank God. So here, it's telling the Israel, God is telling Israel through Moses, the conditions whereby they can partake of and receive the blessing of Abraham. Therefore shall you keep, this is verse 8, Therefore shall you keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land, whether you go to possess it. Theirs was a physical territory or geographic territory. Ours is spiritual ground. And that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that flows with milk and honey. For the land whether thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from whence you came out, where you sowed your seed and watered it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. They had these treadmill things that would pump water from uh, the Nile River, which was really the only source of water they had in Egypt. And so they had these things, these uh, uh, man-made pumps that were generated by people walking, similar to what we think of or, or would think of as a treadmill. And as a result, it was called watering by foot. It's the motion of walking, literal walking, that provided water away from the Nile River in Egypt. Verse 11, But the land that where you go to possess is a land of hills and valleys and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for, the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments which I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season. The first rain and the latter rain that thou mayest gather in the corn and the wine and the oil. And I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them because that will bring the Lord's wrath to be kindled against you and he will shut up the heaven that there be no rain and the land yield not her fruit 
and lest you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thy house and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon the gates, that your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them, as the days of heaven upon the earth. Now what I want you to see here, folks, is that Moses is trying to convince the people and informing them, certainly, that by keeping the commandments, keeping their hearts right toward God, by choosing to be obedient. Now, nobody, everybody knows they're not going to be successful in it 100%. Everybody knows that they can't keep the law without breaking one of them, at least one of them. There were 630 laws and commandments in the Old Testament, by the way. We think of the 10, but that was just the starting point. And the Bible says, and they understood, God had said in the Old Testament, if you break one law, you're guilty of the whole thing. But Moses is trying to tell them, if they'll obey the commandments, give the, the law of God or the word of God first place in their lives so that they focus on that and become committed to it more than anything else, then they can experience an earthly existence like the days of heaven upon the earth. Now, when I read that, I think of what Jesus told the disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, what's known as the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. And that has to be what he's talking about, days of heaven upon the earth. What else could it be? Now this is a promised land that they take from their enemies. Well, let's just keep reading verse 22. For if you shall diligently keep all these commandments, which I command you to, do, to command you to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to cleave unto him, then will the Lord drive out all these nations from before you. These are their enemies, the Malachites, the Philistines, the Jebusites, and whoever else. These are their enemies. They're not our enemies. Our, we have only one enemy, and that's the devil. But remember, the promise is to possess the gates of your enemies. So since Jesus identifies that we're now in the kingdom of God because of his sacrifice, but that that kingdom is spiritual, not natural, that means that we can possess the gates of our enemies and every evil work that he has ever transpired to use against mankind. Sickness, disease, poverty, depression, everything you can mention that's of the devil the blessing of Abraham is to possess the seed of the gates of your enemies to possess the gates of your enemies to possess the gates of your enemies so that you and I can live in existence as the days of heaven upon the earth notice again verse 23 then, the, then will the Lord drive out all these nations from before you and you shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. From the wilderness, well, he gives the boundaries. 
Verse 25, there shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you shall tread upon, as he has said unto you. Luke 17 tells us that Jesus was going into Jerusalem, and um, his disciples certainly were part of the group, but there were others that were around that were trying to get Jesus um, well, they were trying to find out, first and foremost, they were trying to find out if Jesus was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. They're looking for this promise, this territorial promise to be fulfilled. And Jesus tells them about this, the, uh, the parable about the man that went into a far country and left his servants in charge while he was gone. He gave, the, uh, well, Matthew's account, he uses the word talent. He gave them certain talents or a certain amount of money, and then upon his return, he found out what everybody did with the money. Everybody remembers that story, right? Well, without getting into detail about the story or rehashing the story itself, the words that the man left with his servants when he went away is the important part for this discussion. And that is, the man in leaving, he identified to the servants the different talents or amounts of money, resources that he put in their hands or at their disposal and he said occupy till I come now what does occupy mean if not take possession of what's the difference in occupying till I come and possessing the land is there any difference well if there is any difference it's got to be a hair's just one hair's worth of difference it has to be virtually the same thing So when Jesus tells his disciples, uses a parable to try to get across to his disciples, which become his family, his church, you and me. When he says, occupy till I come, what could he mean if not the same thing that he told Israel in the Old Testament about every place that the sole of your foot shall tread, you shall take possession of. Our possessing is different because it's a different territory. It's a spiritual walk, not a natural walk. It's a spiritual walk of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. It's a spiritual walk of faith through confessing and through exercising authority in the earth in the name of Jesus. But it's exactly the same principle. Their example is a perfect example to let us know what we're to do. We are to occupy till he comes. What do we occupy? We possess the gates of our enemies. We take possession of the gates of our enemies. We take possession of that which the enemy would try to use against us to either rob us of the blessings of God or steal some blessing and benefit that he's provided for us. Sickness is something we're to possess. Poverty is something we're to possess. We are to possess all the work of the devil, meaning take authority over each part of it. Because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that the blessing of Abraham could be ours folks I believe the blessing of Abraham the, the most important part of the blessing of Abraham I'm not talking about the new birth certainly that's step one to everything but the important part to me of the blessing of Abraham is to possess the seed of our, to possess, possess the gates of our enemies don't know why I keep getting stuck on that word seed but the most important part to me of the blessing of Abraham is to possess the gates of our enemy. And if that's not the same thing that the Bible says of Jesus, that he came to destroy the works of the devil, 
And what would it be? We have a right, we have a mandate to take possession in our lives of all that Jesus redeemed us from. All of that that's called and considered the blessing of Abraham. To possess the gates of our enemies. There's not one thing the devil can use against you that you don't have authority to stop. There's not one thing, one area of attack, there's not one means of attack that the devil has to use against you or me or any any and every other Christian that we don't have the authority in the name of Jesus to stop. The Bible says that Jesus is coming back for a glorious church and that he will come back when the church has put the devil underfoot. It's the reason Jesus came. It's the reason he gave us his name. It's the reason that the word of God is available for us to know who we're in covenant with, who our heavenly father is, and what Jesus has done for us to possess the gates of our enemies. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree that the blessing of Abraham, that the possessing of the gates of our enemies might come upon the Gentiles that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Father, that your desire is now and always has been for your family to have days of heaven on the earth. It has always been your plan. It always will be your plan for us to take back what the enemy has stolen from us through ignorance or whatever else he's used. We have been placed on this earth, created in the image and likeness of you to have dominion. Therefore, we take dominion over every evil work, every evil attack of the enemy. Satan, we know who we are. We know what we've been given. We know the power of the word and the power of the name of Jesus. So we tell you to take your hands off of our bodies. Sickness, we command you to go in Jesus' name. Satan, we take authority over poverty and lack and financial ruin and destruction. We command you to take your hand off of our finances. Father, we thank you for bringing to pass in our lives all the blessings that you made known to Israel for our benefit. Thank you, Father, that we live in a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual land that's watered with the rains of heaven. We live in a spiritual land where there's more than enough. We live in a spiritual land, a spiritual kingdom where we experience your will in our lives here on the earth just as it is in heaven. Open our eyes, Lord, so that we might see even more and take advantage even more of the things that belong to us. Thank you, Father, that the blessing of Abraham is ours through Jesus. For it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for coming tonight. You're dismissed. <laughs>